Well, Mitch has given me the prize for sermon title of the year for tonight's effort, and it's there in the chat if you want the outline. It's Razors of the Lost Ark. Now, you young folk won't get the pun unless your parents have showed you the classic movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, directed by Spielberg, starring Harrison Ford. Let's have the poster up there. Its non-stop action was the highest grossing film of 1981, just a few years ago. And it led to three more Indiana Jones films. And apparently there's a fifth schedule to come out next year. It really made a lasting impact on pop culture. So what was Raiders all about? Well, Harrison Ford portrayed Indiana Jones, a globe-trotting archaeologist vying with Nazi forces in 1936 to be first to recover the long-lost Ark of the Covenant. This biblical relic allegedly had special powers and so could maybe make an army invincible, so Indiana Jones had to stop the Nazis getting it. Well, this brings us to tonight's sermon from 1 Chronicles 15, where about 3,000 years earlier, the real biblical ark was not quite lost, but it was abandoned for a little while. And now King David was trying to bring it up to his new capital city. And Jerusalem was on a mountain, so they were literally carrying it up the hill. That's why they are raisers of the lost ark. Thank you very much. Or maybe not. What is this ark? Why does it matter? Is there something supernatural about it? Well, when David became king, he kept on fighting battles and winning for God's people. But he'd already been doing that before his coronation. And so in the way Chronicles tells it, the first big new thing David does after becoming king is to carry the ark up to Jerusalem. And it takes four whole chapters in the telling, 13 to 16, to unfold this story. And so as background to our chapter 15, let's see how the matter first came up in chapter 13 from verse 3. I'll read it. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Shehor River in Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went to Bala of Judah, that's Kiriath-Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. Now, we've got a picture of it here, or at least a replica. The ark itself was a rectangular wooden box overlaid in gold. Moses had made it according to God's instruction way back in Israel's wilderness wandering on their way from slavery to freedom in the promised land. And the most important contents in the box were the two stones on which the Ten Commands were carved. Uh, Here, in 13 verse 6, it describes what the ark meant. The ark was the throne of God. David later says, 1 Chronicles 28, 2, that the ark was the footstool of our God. 
And that's because God, of course, is really enthroned in heaven. But the ark, as it were, was the place his feet touched the earth. It was where God was especially present to bless and to guide those who sought him. Well, as we come now to our chapter 1, Chronicles 15, the first point to say is that David raised the ark up to Jerusalem with the Levites. Point 1, ark raised with the Levites. As God's anointed king, actually David initiates almost everything good that happens in Israel. He really is their leader. But this leader does almost none of it alone. And so David brings the ark up with the Levites. You may remember Levi was the tribe of Israel that provided the priests and other religious workers for the nation. Here in 15 verses 1 to 4, David insists the Levites must carry the ark. After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. And David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. David assembled all Israel and Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place he'd prepared for it. He called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. So David has readied the place for the ark to go in Jerusalem. He's erected a big tent to put it in a.k.a. the tabernacle, which just means tent, really. And so he's making preparations, but he insists the Levites alone must carry it. And he explains why in more detail, verse 11. Then David summoned Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and Uriel, Asiah, um, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel and Abinadab, the Levites. I don't know why they picked Joel as a name to give boys these days and not, you know, Abinadab, or, but never mind. He said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. You see, there was no mention of Levites when David first tried moving the ark. Back in chapter 13, 7 to 8, it just says they plumped it on a cart with oxen to pull it while David was sort of partying away. But in verse 9, the oxen stumbled and Uzzah, The man guiding the cart reached out his hand to steady the ark, to stop it falling. And 13 verse 10 says, quote, The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put his hand on the ark. And so he died there before God. And you think, wow, wasn't, wasn't Uzzah just trying to help? Well, the problem was that David and Uzzah totally forgot the holiness of God. Now, many years ago, Prime Minister Paul Keating touched Queen Elizabeth's back at a function. It was a big breach of royal protocol. No commoner 
should touch the Queen without permission. You don't shake her hand unless she's stuck her hand out to you. And the English papers dubbed Mr Keating the Lizard of Oz. Uh, Well, the Queen's just a ceremonial figurehead. But God's moral purity or holiness means we cannot just casually touch God's presence and expect to live. His righteousness, his intense goodness are so totally different from our mixed motives and impure thoughts. Holiness and sin can't coexist. So though God reveals himself at this box, you can't put God in a box. You can't contain his power. Well, David was so distressed by this setback that he'd stopped the whole transfer. Because he got afraid of God, he basically dumped the ark where it was. It was at the house of a bloke called Obed-Edom. And actually, the presence of God in the ark really blessed Obed-Edom. And his house prospered as he hosted the ark. And so now in chapter 15, David wants to do it right. And the law of Moses in Exodus shows, uh, says that carrying the ark was the job for the Levites. And so David makes them, did you see in chapter 15, consecrate themselves like God's law said. Um, that would have meant certain purity rituals to make themselves symbolically clean or pure. And then verses 14 and 15 reports the outcome. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. The Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders, as Moses had commanded, in accordance with the word of the Lord. And maybe our um, excellent Easy Worship people can bring up the picture of the ark again. That was, I think, slide two, just so you see the poles. Um, The Levites use long poles threaded through gold rings on each corner to carry the ark without touching it. Remember, you can't touch God's holiness and live. So just as Exodus instructed. And the point here is that God's way matters. You've got to do things God's way, friends. You can't, you can't just sort of worship God however you feel and, and think he'll be pleased with you if you're making it up yourself. You can't just approach God casually. There's, there's no just sort of making up your own mind about well, which holiness matters and which you can sort of just ignore. This section is stressing the need to inquire of God, in fact, to do things the way he prescribes. And so that means God's word matters. Verse 15 says that this relocation needed the Levites to act in accordance with the word of God. End of verse 15. That's how we discover God's way in his word. In fact, it was, after all, the Ten Commands written on stone in the ark. God's word written right there. And today, friends, we still need to do things God's way. That means in line with God's word. And it's why we reject pragmatism, the the common business strategy uh, where you do whatever it takes. Uh, So much so that sometimes we say the ends justifies the means. No, it doesn't. Not if success in church or in ministry involves or in life, in fact, involves contradicting or ignoring the Bible's teaching. That's pragmatism, and we reject it. God's way matters. 
Well, okay, here's the second thing. The ark was carried up to Jerusalem with a joyful sound. Now, there's less background we need here. We can go straight to verse 16 for this point. David told the leaders of the Levites to appoint their fellow Levites as musicians to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, harps and cymbals. Uh, verses 17 to 18 lists the musicians and there we're told the instruments and who plays them, percussion in verse 19 with the cymbals, it's the uh, stringed instruments in verses 20 and 21 with the lyres and harps and if you don't know what a lyre is, um, I think Ian Parker would tell you it's, it's a kind of ancient guitar. And then actually verse 24 says in addition, a bit later there, there were trumpets to blow. But actually, I think I've really forgotten the most important instrument. And that's the human voice. Look at verse 22. Kenaniah, the head Levite, was in charge of the singing. That was his responsibility because he was skillful at it. In fact, verse 27 says Kenaniah was in charge of the singing of the choirs. Why? Remember verse 22, because he was skillful at it. We love godly musicians. We love you using your gifts and working on your skills, practicing and stretching yourself so you can lead us in singing God's praises. But verse 16 really is the essence. It's all about making a joyful noise to the Lord. The people raising their voices and raising their hearts so the result is verse 25 they raised the ark up with rejoicing end of verse 25 friends music matters to us music matters to god's people as a teenager i had exposure i was just going to a local anglican church but i had exposure to the pentecostal movement uh, through the c3 churches a christian city church was called back then And you've got to say, like many Pentecostal churches, high quality worship music was just huge for them. 30 years later, more than 30 years in fact, I still have a recall, I was so surprised by it, that's why I remember it, their lead pastor, Phil Pringle, uh, he said, and and he shocked people actually, because they love music so much, he said, for a church band, he'd pick an average musician with a good attitude every single time over the best professional muso if he was a show pony. So skill's certainly important, but better still is when skill and character, skill and godliness go together in church music. I love how music can lift our hearts so that the focus is on God, not on us or the musician. And it's something we should love to do together. I think that's part of why it can be hard to sing along with a live stream. Uh, I know, you know, you're kind of self-conscious, maybe people are looking at you on the screen or you turn it off, but then you've just got to hear the sound of your own voice at home. and It's odd, isn't it? But I think the big thing is we're apart from the body of Christ and the joy is not quite the same. But there is one other thing here to be very clear on, and it's this. It's that music does not itself... Bring us closer to God. Music doesn't lead us into God's presence. And I think this is a mistake we can make. 
But David and the Levites were singing because they knew God was already with them. In fact, the ark's presence said they were in the presence of God. They were at his throne. They were simply moving the ark to put it in the place where their king had his capital, where he would rule. And because the ark was the footstool of God's throne, that was a sign that his presence, God's presence, would actually rule over their king. Really what I'm saying here is that they sang in joyful response to grace, not somehow to win his favour or to get closer to him. And really the third thing can be said, uh, the same thing can be said about um, the third thing that goes with the ark's arrival in Jerusalem. Um, the ark was, was raised there with sacrifice. So verse 26. Because God had helped the Levites who are carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. And uh, actually, this section really finishes at the beginning of chapter 16, when the mission is accomplished. Uh, let me just read, and you'll see again the mention of sacrifice. Chapter 16, verse 1. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, He blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. Uh, The ark's now at its resting place in Jerusalem. It's feast time for the people. But first, there's this stack of sacrifices, uh, namely the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, um, two categories of sacrifice mentioned in Leviticus. Uh, The first one was mentioned in Leviticus 1, the burnt offering. And its meaning was described, Leviticus 1, 3 and 4, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the tent mentioned here, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. God promised that the blood of such animals given in his burnt offering was a sign of God's willingness to atone for sin. That is to accept a sacrifice that it could cover over their sins. Now, the other kind of sacrifice mentioned here in Chronicles was the fellowship offering. And Leviticus chapter 7 and verse 12 explains that this fellowship offering was mainly offered, quote, as an expression of thankfulness. And so far as I can see, a fellowship offering was not therefore made to achieve atonement, but because atonement had already been made, because they were thankful to God that he'd made the way to restore the relationship. And so this particular offering or sacrifice is an expression of fellowship already created or recreated, of reconciliation already secured, blessing already given. And so I think that firstly, the burnt offerings may point us to what God will do for his people to make atonement for sin. But secondly, the fellowship offerings can express our thanks for his mercy, our appreciation of life restored with him. 
Now, you may have noticed that the Ark is often called the Ark of the Covenant here in Chronicles. And so I want to conclude with some New Covenant or New Testament thinking about the Ark and thinking about how sacrifice um, and about our access to God's presence now. You, you may have noticed, um, it's possible you just tuned out at the wrong moment, but at the end of our New Testament reading tonight, Revelation 11 and verse 19 said, this is uh, John's great dramatic heavenly vision, he said, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of his Covenant. Yeah, hang on. The earthly temple in Jerusalem was destroyed long ago. And that pretty box, gold inlaid, timber Ark of the Old Covenant, that was long lost or destroyed. But in that symbol-laden imagery of Revelation, in heaven you discover there is a temple and there's an Ark. That's where God sits on his throne. And that's where we will find his ultimate presence and eventually see him face to face. How do we get there? The place to go is another book, in fact the only other book of the New Testament to mention the Ark of the Covenant, Hebrews chapter 9. And we can get this on the screen I think. Hebrews 9 says, the first covenant, now verse 1, had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Verse 2 notes that this tabernacle was set up for it. That's the tent David talks about in Chronicles where David placed the ark. And sure enough, it says in the tabernacle behind the curtain in the inner section called the most holy place, it was, verse 4, the gold-covered ark of the covenant with the gold angelic cherubim above it. Well, Thankfully, perhaps you might think the author of Hebrews says, verse 5, we cannot discuss such things in detail now. You might have already had enough detail tonight. Because the author's point in Hebrews was that while priests still had to offer animal sacrifices, the Holy Spirit was showing the real way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Hebrews really is saying, like so many things of the law in the past, that the tabernacle, you know, with its ark, the covenant box, it was like it was like a shadow. It was like a blueprint of a greater reality to come. And of course that greater reality was Jesus. Because animal blood, just think about it, animal blood cannot really take away human sin it's not like for like but jesus offered his blood and his blood came from a life that was without defect and so his sacrifice on the cross was a perfect one here's how hebrews 9 13 to 14 puts it once again you can see it the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. That's what happened in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts 
that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. So Jesus makes it possible to come into God's presence without shame. He has opened the way. He has made the full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice of himself. It's more than enough to atone for, to cover all our sins. We can stand forgiven before God in Christ. Hallelujah. Now, what's our response to this? Well, I'm really just taking you through Hebrews here, the logic of it. It's the famous verses, Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Let's just grab that up again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, enter the presence by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We don't have to go to some holy place. We don't have to use music to get us closer to God. We just go right in there with Jesus. So let us hold, verse 23, unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Never Stop approaching God with confidence. Not through your own goodness, but through Jesus. But you see, this doesn't just stop with you and Jesus, you know, sorting it out alone in private. Look out, it goes straight on, verse 24 and 5, famous words. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. If you have met God in Christ, surely your response has got to be encourage other believers to keep on believing that and loving each other as much as possible. And let's all do whatever good we can. And a little bit of a surprise, because Hebrews 9 and 10 says Jesus did offer the one true perfect sacrifice for sin. This is where sacrifice comes back in, in our response. Hebrews 13, right, last, last chapter of Hebrews, verses 15 and 16, last quote. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for which such sacrifices God is pleased. These are emphatically not the sacrifices that atone for sin. I think these are more like the fellowship offerings that Chronicles also mentioned. The sacrifices of praise that express publicly our thanks for all Jesus has done for us. That we're openly, we're open about being Christian, but Jesus has done for us. It's not an effort to earn his favour. And of course our singing should be a big part of our praise. But it's also even evangelism. And then it's also by giving up costly time and effort for the sake of doing good and for, and for sharing with those in need. Helping them to come to enjoy the benefits that access to the presence of the living God has, has given us. Amen.